Our Father, we ask you please to be with us in these next few moments, particularly in a way that your word is powerfully understood and felt in our hearts, that you, through your word, increase our faith and work Work out, Lord, those, gives us truths that help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all to your honor and glory. Would you help us to feel and know and to see and delight in the joys of salvation that will be presented to us this morning, as well as to take and sense and to feel the realities of being excluded from that salvation which is the very real warning that you lay before us as well in this parable. And so we ask that you would give us spiritual eyes and ears and understanding. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And as we... Get to Matthew 25, and as you turn there, just remind us that we're coming now to the third parable that Jesus is giving, specifically dealing with preparation regarding his unexpected return. His unexpected return. And Jesus is, throughout this section, urging, exhorting, encouraging those who hear to be spiritually prepared to stand before him. He's he's calling those who hear to be ready to give an account for their life before him. The immediate context is that of his return and the generation who is going to be present on the earth when he does return. But the reality here is, and the principle is broader than that, it is largely dealing with standing before his presence. So it's be ready to die is another way that we could say this. Be ready to always end your life here and stand before Christ and begin your life there forever. So here he's giving us a parable that's calling us essentially to examine our lives, to be ready to give an account of your life to him. Now, before we consider that more closely, it it must be said and understood that nobody wants to, on their own, give an account of their life to God. Every person in this room, every person born, as we understand, is condemned if standing on our own righteousness. So the call here is not to be more righteous so that you can then, on that righteousness, stand before God and be accepted to Him. That goes against the very testimony of all of Scripture. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no man who does not sin. No man who does not sin. David prayed in Psalm 143.2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. None. And we're familiar with Paul's words in Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one, lest someone think they might slip through the cracks and be that righteous one that could on their own stand before God. 
And if you are a believer in Christ, if you have experienced the regenerating power of God, if you have been born again, if you have the reality of spiritual life in you, then you agree and feel and concur and agree in your heart with Paul's own words that says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And you feel at times... More intensely, but always with the understanding, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? That's what spiritual life looks like. So to say here that you will give an account to your life is not to say pursue righteousness so that you will be righteous enough to stand before God. That only righteousness or the only righteousness by which we can stand before God in those amazing words, holy and blameless, is in that perfect righteousness of Christ. It is covered by His life. It is in the words of Paul in Galatians 3 to be clothed with Christ. In Corinthians to say that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ and in Christ alone. So to say that you need to be spiritually prepared to stand before Him and give an account of your life is really to say this. It's not to say then pursue righteousness and be good enough in your life so that you'll be ready to stand before Him. It is to say examine your life and understand and discern that you have His righteousness covering you. That you have his life in you and that you are pursuing to live out that life with all that you have. It is then to say, be sure that your life demonstrates the reality of the spirit of God in you. That you have been united to Christ and covered with his righteousness. In other words, make sure that your life shows the reality of repentance. A reality of obedient faith. The reality of a relationship with God, fellowship with God. That's what it means to be spiritually prepared and to be prepared to stand before Christ. Now, why do we want to start with all this? Because, one, this is exactly where Jesus is going to lead us in this parable. And, number two, because we are all aware that many simply assume that they're going to heaven, but they're making this assumption for all of the wrong reasons. They're building their life on the wrong foundation. Some say that, and take confidence in the fact that they will be accepted by God on that day when they stand before Him, because I believe Christian doctrine, even sound Christian doctrine. Some will say, because based on that doctrine, I pursue a general morality in life. Others, because I'm active in Christian service. Or others, because I have emotional responses to Christian worship, whether it be songs or other things. All of those things are good, but they are not sufficient in and of themselves to build confidence that you can stand before God. If those things are not attended with repentance and obedience, they could very well just be evidence of being on the broad path. So, so many fail to examine their lives based on God's criteria and simply assume, or we could say presume, upon God's grace. One has said this, A mindless coziness with the Lord and feelings of warm devotion toward Him are dangerous if we think they substitute for obedience to Jesus' ethics. 
In other words, to an obedient life. And so this is really, in the main, one of the issues or the issue that Jesus is dealing with in this parable. And as one described it, I could, would borrow someone else's words again, in this way, correctly. Our parable teaches the dangers of an unblessed assurance. The foolish bridesmaids in our parable think they're having accepted the invitation to the wedding party guarantees their participation in it and that they need no special preparation for it. And so this is really then a parable about spiritual preparedness and spiritual presumption. And the basic point of the parable is this, that the wise prepare their soul and enter into life, the foolish presume and perish. Now with that in mind, let's read the first, or, uh, this parable, uh, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll look at it more closely. Begin with me in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Look back up at verse 1, and let's consider generally first the parable itself. He says, The kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. As mentioned before, he's now bringing an end to his teaching that really begin in verse 42, or these parables that begin in verse 42, where he is applying the reality of his return, the return described in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 24. And he has been emphasizing throughout that this return is going to be unexpected. It's going to catch, catch many unawares. And so, therefore, be ready for it. Be ready for it. And so here he's going to end that teaching with the parable, as we just read, of ten virgins who are preparing to meet the bridegroom as he comes to pick up his bride or to the wedding feast. So let's begin here then with a few observations. And the first is this. This is now the second wedding imagery parable that Jesus is giving in this last week of his life as he's marching toward the cross, as he is both bringing out or revealing the judgment that's coming on the nation and the salvation that is coming at the end of the age. The first parable that he gave, a wedding parable that he gave, was back in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And there, you don't have to turn there, 
But there, Jesus is emphasizing that the gospel call is going to go out to all of the nations. So God's saving energy, his purpose, as it were, is being removed from the Jewish nation who has rejected him and is going to go out to all, to those, he says, who are producing the fruit of it. And he gives this picture of those who were invited to the wedding feast of God, who refused it, and then the gospel call goes out to many, they accept it, and there they are, gathered at the end of this parable, then this great wedding feast of the king, and yet when the king enters into this great feast, he notices one in verse 11 who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless, and so the king then has him bound and cast out into the outer darkness. He was shocked to find that he was not prepared to be at the feast. In fact, he was not clothed, the point is, with the garments of salvation. And in this parable too, Matthew 25, there is this great element of surprise, of not being prepared for the wedding feast. Except here, it's not one being kicked out, but one who's being excluded from entering in. Notice secondly, that Jesus uses here, and we don't always want to point out grammar unless it's helpful. And I, and I would just here point out one thing is that he says, notice the future tense that he uses there. He says, heaven will be compared to. The kingdom of heaven will be compared to. And that's, that's only interesting and important to note for this reason, that he uses the exact same form of that will be compared to one other time in Matthew. And it's a passage that relates directly to the parable here. And it's in Matthew chapter 7. Again, don't Turn there, you can just listen. In verses 24 and 26 is where he uses the word. And it is there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving his final warnings to those who heard. And he's saying then that there are... Everyone who's hearing these words will respond in two ways. And so there are two ways to build on these words. Two houses. One house will be built on the sand and when judgment comes it will fall. So he says in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act with them will be like, there's our word, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then there is a house, of course, that was built on the rock and it will stand. And so he's making a comparison here. And in that passage and in ours, both are looking forward to this future return of Christ for judgment. Both are comparing the wise and the foolish, and both are evaluated by their response to the word of God. Both have two religious houses, one of which alone is genuine, is genuine. So here we are in our parable, and he's making then a comparison between those who are prepared and ready and those who are not. And the imagery is really an imagery of joy. It's an imagery of celebration. It's imagery of happiness. There was Nothing more happy within that culture and ours as well than a wedding feast. It was a big deal. It was throughout their history, and it still is, particularly over in the Middle East and, of course, in our culture as well. It was such a, such a significant event that some have recorded that when a wedding procession went by, that even the rabbis would stop their teaching of the Torah to honor this procession going by. It was a big deal. And because 
weddings are pictures of celebration and happiness and joy. It's, of course, used often in Scripture to refer to that future salvation of God is pictured very often in the context and in terms and in imagery of a wedding feast of joy, of celebration and so forth. And, and so it is here. And so it is here. And so they would have put those things together, two and two together, and been bringing all of that context into this parable of the Lord. And of course, the great joy of a wedding feast was participating in it. To not participate in it, to have to look at it from the outside, or for some reason not to be invited or excluded, was then, of course, a great sorrow. And so Jesus is illustrating both of those points here in this parable. Look at what he says. He says, The kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. To meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. And in these first two verses, he's really setting up the parable. And then he'll explain the events and roll the camera, as it were, after that in verses 3 and following. And again, the general point here is that the wise are prepared for Christ's return and the foolish are not. And let me make just one other note here before we begin, and that's this. That this is a parable. He's making a point. Not every detail of the parable is an allegorical comparison to some spiritual truth, which is how this parable has been handled throughout the ages. It's really incredible some of the things that people see here, which are certainly not what Jesus meant. He's telling a story. The number of maidens, the oil, the lamps, the buying of the oil, and all of that are not symbolic of spiritual truths, but they're adornments to the story to make the overall point. And so that's helpful for us to understand. But that being said, it's also important to understand weddings in the first century culture, so we might better grasp what's going on here. Now, there were three basic phrases in a wedding in Jewish culture, and really in Palestinian culture and others uh, today. One is the engagement. That's really where the the contract is made, as it were. The second is a betrothal, and they involve the exchanging of vows. And the third is a wedding feast. And it is that third aspect that Jesus is focusing on here, the wedding feast. Now, it was common custom at the time for the bridegroom to arrive at the home of the bride. There he would receive his bride to himself, and then they would go together in great procession to the home of the bridegroom or his parents. And then that is where the festivities would take place. The celebration that could last up to a week's worth of time would all take place there. It was an incredibly joyous and celebratory situation. And during that time, if it lasted up even for the week or as long as it lasted, that bride and the bridegroom would be treated like a king and a queen. They were the center of attention and all of the celebration was focused on them. So here in this parable, the bridegroom could be coming to the home of the bride where these virgins are waiting to get her to then proceed from there to his parents' home and begin the festivities. It's also possible that, as sometimes happened, that when the bridegroom came from a long distance, that the festivities took place at the home of the bride. It's really hard to tell. But what is clear is that these bridesmaids are tasked with waiting for the bridegroom upon his arrival and to go out and meet him with lamps. 
And the idea isn't so much to light his way. He clearly had light already to get there. The idea is, is rather this, as one described it, to make for a grand arrival. The bridegroom will be illumined as a focus of attention. This is his moment of glory. He is on the way to take his bride. So is the picture here. Again, it's a picture of celebration. It is a picture of honoring this bridegroom and this occasion. Let me make just an incidental note here. The lamps are not likely inside lamps like little handheld oil lamps. That's, that's not the picture here. They're, they're either torches, so a long stick with cloth dipped in oil at the end, or a possibly even another version of that, one which is described as a, a long wooden stick and a vessel like a dish in which there's a piece of cloth in it with oil and pitch at the top. Most likely, however, here, these lamps are really torches. They're really torches that these virgins were taking, uh, taking with them. And again, because these kind of arrivals very often took at night, these are all very common elements of these festivities. So having torches and being prepared and all of that were common events readily understood. Let's note secondly, however, and more significantly, the point of the story. And we could say that this is the prepared, the unprepared, and the unexpected. The prepared, the unprepared, and the unexpected. So Jesus establishes in verse 2, of these ten versions, five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Five were prudent. And with this statement, Jesus sets the essential contrast of the parable that will establish his point. It is a contrast between the wise and the foolish, those who are prepared and those who are unprepared, those who will enter the feast and those who will be excluded. Let's note first the unprepared. How are they described? He says, The unprepared are the foolish who took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. So now he's explaining why they are described as wise and foolish. And the foolish are because they were unprepared. They did not take oil with them. If you want to bring that into modern times, that that could be kind of akin or like maybe a best man who doesn't double check to make sure he has the rings. And then he might show up empty-handed. Well, that's somewhat of how it is with these virgins here who don't take care to take extra oil that they might be ready to meet this bridegroom just in case. And the plain and simple fact is that the wise planned and the foolish did not. They did not. There's no explanation given for why they didn't plan, but the implication is, is that they simply assumed that they would be fine. That taking their torches as they were would be sufficient. That it would be sufficient. This would be a, akin spiritually to what Proverbs 12:15 says, that their way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Now, surely they would have seen the other virgins making preparation, taking care to bring extra oil with them, but they took no concern with it. They weren't to be bothered with the extra work. They may have presumed even that they could simply make up for their indolence and their laziness later, which is indicated even in verse 8 when they go to the wise to ask for oil in that moment. The point is, however, they were unprepared. They were not ready to complete the task that was assigned to them, which was to meet the bridegroom at his return. And then there is the prepared. He says, the wise, they, on the other hand, or the prudent, took oil in flasks, verse 4, along with their lamps. 
In other words, they thought ahead and they took action. And so they asked themselves questions like, well, what if he does take a long time? What if this does take longer than is expected? What if my torch won't be ready? What if I run out of oil? I must prepare for these contingencies. And the point is they considered their ways. They considered their circumstances. They considered their readiness to meet the bridegroom. That's the point. Remember here that Jesus is talking about the kingdom, preparedness for his return. This would be then like us asking, am I prepared for the return of Christ? Am I prepared to stand before him? Am I prepared to die and enter eternity? Does my life show the fruit of salvation? So you have the unprepared, the prepared, and notice next the unexpected in verses 5 through 6. While the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a great shout, Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Now I want you to notice three unexpected things here. Three unexpected events or three unexpected circumstances. The first unexpected circumstance is this, the delay of the bridegroom. They waited and waited, and he never came. He was a long time in coming. They may have passed the evening in conversation, planned what they would do when he was arrived, maybe thought what it would be like to meet him, maybe planning their own weddings, as girls are wont to do. Who knows, but they passed the evening, but as the evening drew on and as it dragged on, they eventually could stay awake no longer. And so the second unexpected circumstance is this. They fell asleep. They fell asleep. They didn't necessarily expect to fall asleep. It doesn't say one way or the other, but most likely not. Certainly the foolish versions don't seem to have been thinking that way. I mean, the excitement would have kept them up for a, a little while. But again, as the evening wore on, the anticipation died down, dried, uh, died down. They became drowsy and eventually fell asleep. Now notice here then about that. All of the virgins were sleeping. All of them were sleeping. Becoming drowsy and falling asleep is not the problem. And I say that because it's just amazing the kind of things that some will try to pull out of that. They simply fell asleep because they were tired. That's the only point. There is nothing sinful. There's nothing imprudent. There's nothing immoral. There's nothing unethical about their sleeping. They were simply tired and they all fell asleep. So the problem of the parable is not they're falling asleep. It's not an indictment about spiritual slumber or anything like that. The problem is not sleeping, but unpreparedness, which will become apparent with the third unexpected circumstance. And notice it, it is the unexpected or the sudden announcement of the bridegroom's arrival. The sudden announcement of the bridegroom's arrival. As the virgins peacefully slept, waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, there suddenly, and in the middle of the night, rang out a shout that startled them. And while they were sleeping softly and quietly, all of a sudden they hear, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Be ready to meet him. And the cry is intense. It's sudden. It breaks the calm silence of the night. I thought a way to compare this, to understand this, would be like a fire station alarm. 
You know, you've seen those scenes where they're all sleeping peacefully in the night and all of a sudden a, a tragedy happens and this siren rings out through the night and they jump up out of the beds, they throw on their clothes, get their equipment and run out the door and go down the poles and so forth. There's no time to spare. They must quickly get ready and go. And so it is here. While they're peacefully sleeping in the night, a sudden cry goes out to meet the bridegroom. But this is where the problem is displayed. They're not all prepared to do that. And it's precisely at this point, and and grasp this, it's precisely at the point of the very event for which they were waiting that their unpreparedness becomes exposed. That the foolishness of the foolish is exposed and the wisdom of the wise is exposed. Before that time, all may have seemed well. They were all invited. They were all present. They were all ready and talking and anticipating the same event. They each had torches. They all seemed to be on the same page, but there was a tragic Tragic deficiency for some. Some were not prepared. Thirdly then, an uncomfortable and unfortunate situation. Verse 7. All those virgins arose. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But then the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Again, as the fireman would jump up, button his coat, throw on his boots... So they were to grab their lance, prepare them, and to go out to meet the bridegroom. But they made a tragic discovery, some of them did. When they were going to meet the bridegroom, their lamps or their torches, they noticed, were going out. They were going out, they say at the end of verse 8. They may have been left burning while they slept. That's a possibility. It may have been that they lit them, but they didn't have a lot of time to burn before they had to add oil. And so while getting ready, it was flickering out. It could be any of those circumstances. But the point is, is that they were getting ready to go. They were called to action and their lamps or their torches were going out. They were flickering. They were fading. They clearly could not make the journey to meet the bridegroom. And so it produced an uncomfortable situation. Likely panicked and worried, the foolish turned to the wise virgins and asked for some of their oil. Please give us some of your oil. Please give us some of your oil. Please help us out in this situation. And here they simply expect the wise virgins will make up for their foolishness. Make up for their foolishness. And now notice that this is a completely selfish request. It's a selfish request, and it shows their heart that's been the problem all along. Why is it a selfish request? Because they give no concern to whether the other virgins will have enough, only to their own need. And they're displaying the same self-centered attitude that was the problem from the beginning. Their lack of preparation, their presumptuous and laissez-faire attitude is now, however, called to account. And remember here that this is about the kingdom. This is about the kingdom. This is about spiritual preparation for the kingdom. And there is a picture here and a warning then to all that we will not be allowed into the kingdom and participate in God's salvation. And this is particularly a warning to children, particularly a warning to children, by simply being in a Christian home, having Christian parents, and being familiar with and friendly with Christian doctrine, having Christian friends and doing Christian things. 
That's not going to help. The Jews trusted in those things. He says, you think because you have Abraham as your father and you have all of the things that flow out externally from this covenant, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice, etc. But those are not what is a strong foundation to build your salvation. Rather, it is repentance. And so here there is, a, there is a hint here of warning that says you must personally have repentant faith in Christ. It doesn't matter how much somebody loves you and wants you to be saved. If you don't repent, then there is no salvation. Paul wept for tears and said, I wish that I could give up my own salvation for his countrymen whom he loved in Romans 9. But that could not be. And so it is here that these virgins, these foolish virgins, realize that they are deficient. They look to the wise. They ask for help. And what do the wise say? They say, no. No. They didn't say it like that. They probably said it nicer. No. No. We will not give you our oil. Why? Because, verse 9, there will not be enough for us and you too. That's why... Now, you might say, isn't that cruel? Shouldn't they have compassion? Shouldn't they have wanted to share? Doesn't God want us to share and to be nice to those in need? If we were in the desert and somebody forgot their water, wouldn't we want to share with them our water? If we were in a famine and we had food, wouldn't he want us to share our food with them? Isn't this wrong of these other virgins to not be willing to sacrifice and help? Well, the general answer is yes, we should want to share, right? That's godly, that's good, that's right. We should share our things and we should make personal sacrifices. But the foolish ones here have an issue that's even deeper. And the wisdom of their response of the wise is exactly the right kind of response. There is a foolish kind of compassion as well. There's a foolish kind of compassion and a foolish compassion is a compassion that would keep you from fulfilling your own obligation because of the poor choices of others. Because of the poor choices of others. These wise versions had a responsibility to light the way and to go out and meet the bridegroom. They had a responsibility to do that. Their responsibility was no less important than the others. And here they say if they were to give some of their oil, they would not have had enough for themselves. And then none of them would have been able to go out and to meet the bridegroom. It wasn't enough for both. So indeed, it is the foolish virgins who are thinking and behaving selfishly, not the wise ones. The wise, get this, are putting the bridegroom first. They're putting honoring him first. They're putting their task to honor him and his glory, as it were, first. And that was right. And so they give them counsel and they say, Go, rather, to the sellers or the dealers and purchase some for yourselves. So now what the foolish virgins avoided and they refused to do at first, they now have to do, but it's at the most inopportune and most inconvenient time. Earlier they neglected the opportunity to buy oil. Now they are forced to do so. And I would note here that sometimes Roman Catholics use this passage to say that one must go out and buy virtue. You don't buy virtue. You come to the springs of salvation and you buy without cost, as he says in Isaiah and Revelation. 
No, that's not the point. The point here is this. They are responsible for their lack of preparation and will now have to bear the consequences of being away at the bridegroom's return. So note then next the unfortunate situation. Those are the unfortunate circumstances. Now here's the unfortunate situation. While they were going to buy oil, the bridegroom came and those who were prepared entered with him to the feast and the door was shut. So this is the worst possible scenario. While they're out hurrying to buy oil, the bridegroom comes and they miss out on the whole thing. And you can only imagine that feeling that they would have had if we get into the, uh, the sense of the, the parable that Jesus is giving here. You can only imagine that anxious, hurried feeling they would have had while they were out trying to buy oil. You know that feeling like when you're late to get somewhere and you're way behind schedule and yet you can't make things go faster and you, you have to still drive and you still have to do things before you get there and you're constantly anxious and hurried and that's very likely what they were feeling. They, they were, knew they had to go out, they were unprepared They were worried about missing the main event, but that is exactly what happened. And so after going out and acquiring oil, they came back to the place where they were, or possibly now to the bridegroom's home. In either case, they come to where the festivity is, and they find that the door is shut. The door is shut. There is an absolute sense of finality to this action. An absolute sense of finality. You can, you can almost hear while they were away the door shutting. You can almost hear the latch fall into place. You can almost hear the sound of the festivities fading on to be on the other side of the door that now they are excluded from. So there is at this point an absolutely clear divide. It was not clear before. They were all in this together. But now there's a clear distinction. There's a divide between the foolish and between the wise. There's an unbridgeable separation. And probably the foolish virgins here, knowing that he has arrived, held on to the hope that even still they would be let in upon his return or their return. Note lastly here then that there is a shocking rejection. A shocking rejection. Hurrying back... They are met then with this devastating scene. The door is shut and all the guests are inside while they are left standing outside in the darkness of the night. And so what do they do? Likely they were knocked as well. He doesn't mention that here. But knocking or not, they cry out to those on the other side of the door. Verse 11, Lord, Lord, open up for us, for us. We're back, as it were. We're ready now to enter into the feast. Open up for us. Open up. Notice here that they strongly desire to be at the feast. And yet, despite their cry and despite the last-ditch effort, the door remains shut. It's unopened. And they hear then these chilling words. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. This is absolutely shocking. Of all the words they could have heard, not right now, I'll get to it later, wait for a moment. Of all the words they could have heard and maybe expected to hear, they did not expect the master to deny any knowledge of them. This is tantamount to saying that you are no longer considered invited and welcome guest. You are shunned 
from the wedding feast. You made your decisions. Now you are suffering the consequences of it. Now in common culture, this would be mostly unexpected. And this then is the shocking element of the parable, as Jesus always adds. This is the unexpected surprise. What? He's not going to let them in just for being a little late? Right. The door has been shut. And while it's an unexpected situation in terms of common culture, it is the just action and judgment of the Lord for those who are unprepared for His return. For those who did not take time to prepare their souls to meet Him. There is a similar warning. You can just listen in Luke 13. Different occasion, but similar picture here. Might be helpful for us. He says there, and he's referring to those who, hearing his teaching, witnessing his ministry, yet were not believing. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter the narrow door is akin, is, is, is linked to the idea of Be prepared. Be prepared. He says in verse 25, For once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door and say, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I will tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, they expected a certain familiarity to gain them entrance. They expected this kind of casual acquaintance to gain them entrance, to move the heart of the Lord, as it were, while in fact they were ignoring his instructions up to that point all the time and failed to prepare themselves for his return. In terms of those who hear this from the Lord, there is no greater conceivable dread than these words, these words of rejection. Not only words of rejection, but words of rejection from one who is himself incarnate love, who is the very demonstration and fullness of God's grace to sinful man. To have one who is so known to us in his tenderness and in his kindness and his willingness to save, all of a sudden give those awful words, no. I do not know you. It reminds us here that God's love is a holy love. It is a holy grace. And he does not excuse laziness and a lack of repentance. The idea that love and grace makes no demands is damning. God's love is not a wishy-washy love. It is not a weak love. It is a holy love. Tender, yes, but holy And the idea basically is this. There is no salvation where there is no repentance and love for Christ that is manifest in obedience to his commandments. There's no transformed life. There is no salvation. Let me give you one other passage briefly that you're familiar with. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven... But he who, listen, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did you in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They thought that there was a familiarity, a relationship, but in fact, there was no relationship. Let me say this as clearly as I can on this point anyway. The reality of a spiritual life is love for Christ that conquers a love for self. That's a reality of spiritual life. It is an inward compulsion toward obedience to Christ and His commands. A desire, a compelling to do His will that ultimately subdues our own will. A self-loathing that finds joy in Christ and the grace that clothes one in His righteousness. That's the evidence. That's preparing. That's what it means to pursue being prepared to stand in His presence. To say, do I see those things in my life and do I pursue them? Do I seek to develop that kind of fellowship and growth in that kind of faith? Whatever else a profession one may have, if these are evident, absent, then there's no evidence of regeneration. And so at this point then, he makes the parable even more stunningly clear. He says in verse 13, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. And so there are only two classes of people that exist, and they will be exposed at his return, the wise and the foolish. And I want to make just two simple applications. They've been sprinkled throughout, but I want to just zero in on them as we get ready to enter into the Lord's table here. And that's this. Because this is really what the Lord wants us to do here by by hearing his words. First is this. Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Don't presume upon grace. That happens. I have family members, as you do too, who live disobedient lives and yet are absolutely convinced they're going to heaven. Amazing. Impervious to the commands of Scripture and the warning of Scripture when you give them to them. It happens. It happens. These foolish versions simply assumed that they were fine. One of the greatest dangers is to presume you stand in grace by mistaking a friendly or a casual acquaintance with Jesus as evidence of salvation. Many, many professing Christians acknowledge the truth of the gospel and yet ignore these warnings. Ignore them because they have a wrong view of grace. It's the kind of Christianity that's promoted in many churches. It's simply to think that believing on Jesus and a general morality or Christian service is enough. It's not. God calls us to repentance, to a life of obedience and faith. J.C. Ryle said over a hundred years ago, just quickly on this point, at present, we must all be aware the vast majority of professing Christians care nothing at all about it, Christ's return. They have no sense of sin. They have no love towards Christ. They know nothing of being born again. Repentance, faith, and grace, and holiness are mere words and names to them. And yet, these are the things that God says are the very heart and breath of spiritual life and the faith in Him. So the first one is this. Simply examine yourself. Don't presume upon grace. Don't create your own self-styled religion that you think will be convincing to the Lord and is enough. You must listen to the Word of God. Secondly is this. Pursue righteousness, faith, 
and live in a manner that you're always ready to meet the Lord. That's what the wise are. They took these warnings to heart and they considered them. As a matter of fact, the warnings of Scripture are more meant for believers than unbelievers because a believer hears these warnings and examines his life when there's sin present and responds by seeking repentance. An unbeliever just simply brushes them off. I don't need to worry about that. Everything is fine. And so what we are to do then is to pursue righteousness. Each person here has the same warnings, the same promise, and the same opportunities to make the same choices. And we each bear the consequences for them. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Make sure that you have a faith that repents, a faith that obeys, and a faith that trusts a faith that perseveres, and a faith that pursues in uh, fellowship with him. One of the most dangerous words to our souls, I'll worry about that tomorrow. I'll take that sin revealed in my heart, that area of unbelief that flashed before my eyes. I'll worry about that tomorrow at another time when it's more convenient. Don't do that. And so as we come to this table this morning, it's a time to, for self-examination. It's a time for worship. It's a time for delight. It's a time for joy or those who do see his life. But it's also a time for self-examination. And to say, God, do I see your life in me? Are your joys my joys? Are the things you hate the things I hate? Can I say that the nearness of God is my greatest good? If not, then don't fool yourself by taking these table, this element and participating and thinking all is fine. Consider your life and repent. If you do see his life in you, then this is a great time to rejoice, a great time to prepare your heart, and a great time to worship with his people. Let's pray. And then, Father, we do thank you for your word. And our Lord, we thank you for speaking to us truth so clearly, so designed for the for our souls to be prepared to meet you, so designed to give us wisdom when we respond in faith and to live with hope and to not be shocked on that day, but rather to rejoice and delight and to sing your praises and anticipate that day with great eagerness. I pray that you would do your work in the heart of each one here. As we gather now to come before your table to remember your death, your resurrection, your present life in us as we anticipate your return. In your name, Jesus, amen.